So please just remember that, that, you know, Stephen is full of the Spirit and he's full of God's grace. Do you agree that we as Christians should be able to defend what we believe? Right. You know, the Apostle Peter in, in 1 Peter 3 verse 15 writes, Always be prepared to give the reason for the hope that you have. And then in Jude verse 3, we are, we are charged, we are encouraged to contend for the faith. And that word contend means to compete for something in order to win. Right? So we need to contend for the faith with, with the intention of actually helping people to know what we know. And then in Acts 26, and we will get, Acts 26, we'll get there eventually, next year sometime. Now Paul is giving a defense of the gospel before the Roman emperor, sorry, the, the, the Roman governor Festus, and he tries to get him to see that what he, Paul, has been saying all along is true and reasonable. You know, so Christians need to be always ready and able to defend the gospel, to contend for the gospel, in a way that comes across as being true and reasonable. And that is what we see in you know, this defense of, of Stephen that, we, you know, that we're studying through. Now we call this apologetics. Now the apologetics, this doesn't mean that we need to apologize for our faith. It comes from the, the Greek word apologia, which really means to speak in defense of something. You know, like we see Stephen doing in Acts 7. So we should always be willing and able to give a reasoned defense of our faith and to do it biblically and boldly. Remember those things. If you want to summarize the approach of Stephen, he defends himself biblically and boldly. So just to summarize and to recap what we did last week, because today's lesson really continues. It's, it's difficult to break the sermon up into, into two parts. Uh, but just to summarize then what we, what we learned last Sunday. You know, Stephen, as I said, has been accused of blaspheming against God, against Moses, against the temple and against the law. And he has been brought before the Sanhedrin to, to defend himself. He's given a chance to respond to these accusations. Um, and we saw how Stephen up front connected with his accusers. He found common ground with them. Uh, he showed them respect. He referred to them as my brothers and my fathers. He spoke about our father Abraham. And he gets into the scriptures very quickly because he knew, well, you know, the, the Sanhedrin loved the scriptures. They loved the history of Israel just as Stephen did. So he connects with them and finds common ground. And I spoke about the lesson for us in that. It doesn't help to, you know, we, we, you know when we witness or when we share our faith with people to alienate them up front. You know, we find common ground with people. And this is what Stephen does. It doesn't help to defend the faith if the people you are speaking to have basically shut out, they're not interested in listening because you just offended them in the beginning. Amen? So Stephen gives us a great example of, of how to connect with people. And then right up front, uh, he also describes God as the God of glory. Now, the God of glory, that is the highest, most exalted title of God. It pulls together all the qualities of God. And it, this title is used only once in the scriptures, in the Old Testament scriptures. That was by David, the respected King David, in Psalm 29. 
So Stephen, in that one sentence, basically refutes this accusation that he, that he doesn't honor God. He's not a blasphemer. He understands and knows God as the God of glory. And then he goes on to relate the story of Abraham. He stresses how God appeared to him in Mesopotamia, which was far from Jerusalem, far from the promised land, and God was, God was present there. And how God called Abraham to leave and to go. And in his story, his, his recounting of you know, Abraham, Stephen makes two important points. Firstly, firstly, he makes the point that God is not limited to a particular place. God is not even limited to a particular people. Because when God appeared to Abraham, Abraham and his family were idolaters. They, had, they just didn't know the true God at all. And then secondly, the lesson we get from Stephen in his recount of Abraham is that God is a God on the move. God moves, and therefore God's people need to move with him. As God's people, we must be willing to leave and go. And this was a dig at the, at the Jewish leaders. What he was basically telling them was that, man, you guys are stuck. You know, you're stuck in an old worldview. You're stuck in these traditions and rituals around the temple. You're stuck in such a limited view of God. God is on the move and it's time to move with him. And then he goes on to, he moves on to Israel's history to the time of the patriarchs and he focuses on Joseph. Now Joseph was sent by God to rescue his people, represented by his brothers, the other twelve sons of Jacob, but they rejected, they rejected Joseph. And Stephen would repeat this accusation during his defense that, you know, Israel throughout its history has rejected the people that God sends to rescue them. The very people that Israel should have embraced as their rescuers and their deliverers, they rejected. And he's obviously leading up to the final accusation that we will hear next week, is that they have rejected the Messiah. And this is, this is par for Israel. Throughout their history, they have rejected their deliverers. We, we, we then started looking at uh, Moses last week as well. He was another man sent by God to rescue his people, but he too was rejected. And last week we saw how Stephen answered the criticism or the accusations against him that he was a blasphemer of Moses. It was clear that he honored Moses highly. And we saw that as he, as he recounted the life of Moses, he focused only on the good stories. Now Moses had some character flaws, didn't he? Now, but Stephen just ignores those. You know, he doesn't want to alienate the guys, so he kind of sticks to the, the good stories about, about Moses. He deeply honored Moses. There was no ways that he would blaspheme Moses. And then we ended in verse 29, where Moses has just fled to Midian, once again as a result of being rejected by God's people. Moses tried to intervene in a squabble, a fight between two um, Israelite men. He tried to reconcile them. They rejected that and Moses ran off to Midian. So we're going to take up the reading today um, in verse 30. You guys there? Acts 7 verse 30. Let me first pray though. Father God, as always, we are excited, we're privileged 
we just love coming together as your family, Father, and looking into your scriptures. Father, I pray that we will be inspired by the example of Stephen. Uh, he has become, he is one of the heroes of the faith. I pray, Father, that you will help me to be like him, uh, preaching a sermon on a sermon. He's interesting, God, and I especially pray that I will be like the original preacher here. Help me, God, to be full of the Spirit. Help me, God, to be full of wisdom. And help me, God, especially to be full of your grace, that whenever I speak a word, that will come across as being full of grace. Full of truth, yet full of grace. So we love you, God. Please prepare our hearts now as we are are challenged by this man who was so much like Jesus uh, to the very end when he died. I love you, God, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, verse 30. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. So Moses has been in Midian for 40 years, as I mentioned, when God appeared to him. Now the God who called Abraham in Mesopotamia, far north of Judah. Now the God who was with Joseph in Egypt, far south of Judah now meets with Moses near Mount Sinai, far east of Judah. Now the point that Stephen is making is clear, is that you cannot limit God to a particular place. You know, God is everywhere. God tells Moses that he's standing on holy ground. Wherever God is, that ground is holy. You cannot limit God to a temple. You cannot limit God to, to a place or people even Right? God is everywhere. Amen. (laughs) I can cope with the background noise. Can you guys? Should we try to turn something off? Not the sound system. Okay. Great. Um, (laughs) You know, God calls Moses. He says, you know, you've been here for 40 years. I know you got quite comfortable you don't particularly want to go back to Egypt, I'm sure, where you're being rejected, but it's time to leave. So God causes, calls Moses, like he called Abraham, to leave and to go. You know, God is on the move and his chosen people must move with him. The Sanhedrin were in a comfort zone. They were in a place that they were secure in. They were comfortable even in their pride and thinking that they knew it all. You know, they needed to leave and go. And it's the same for us. You know, as followers of Jesus, we need to move with him. When Jesus says, follow me, he's implying that he's going to go somewhere, isn't he? You know, and as followers of Jesus, we need to go wherever Jesus leads us. It might not be to a new physical place, but it will definitely require movement out of our comfort zones. It will require movement of our worldviews. It will require movement from what we are comfortable and secure in. It will require us leaving behind any, any sense of self-importance that we have. 
like the Sanhedrin did. Now we need to leave and go as God's people. Verse 35. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. So yes, Stephen rubs it in. He repeats what he has just said earlier on in verse 27. Just in case they had short memories, he reminded them that God's people in Egypt had rejected the deliverer that God had given them. And then he quotes from Moses himself in Deuteronomy 18 verse 15. This is one of the great messianic prophecies in which Moses spoke about a time when God would raise up a prophet, when God would raise up a deliverer just like him. And he's obviously alluding to Jesus, who the Jewish leaders were, were busy rejecting. You know, just as their ancestors had originally rejected Moses. So Stephen is making it clear that he is no blasphemer of Moses. He honors Moses. But he also implies that you can't honor Moses if you don't honor the person that Moses was pointing forward to. You get that? You know, Stephen honored Moses because he honored Jesus. Unlike the Sanhedrin. Now, they were really the ones who were not honoring Moses because they weren't honoring Jesus. Verse 38. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. Now, this is an amazing scene. of It's a gathering of God's people. It's the assembly of God's people. God is present. The angels are there. Now, they, they are having just amazing fellowship, and they're receiving the living word of God. Now, this is holy ground. This happened in Mount Sinai in the wilderness. Now, God is not limited to a particular place or land or building. God cannot be boxed. And yeah, he also refutes the charge against him that he blasphemed the law, that he didn't honor the law. No, he said, the law was the living word of God. You know, unlike the Sanhedrin, in whose hands the law was dead, Stephen understood that the law of God, now the scriptures are meant to be living words, bringing about life. Now in Hebrews 4 verse 12, we read that the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The Sanhedrin didn't understand God's word like that. It became stagnant. It was just words on scrolls. It wasn't living, it wasn't bringing about change. Now Stephen respected the word of God deeply. He understood that it was meant to be far more than just Dead words. It was meant to be alive and bring about change from within. I think the challenge for us is, do we experience the scriptures like that? You know, all the scriptures alive in us. Now, all the scriptures bringing about life in us. Are they bringing about change? Are the scriptures exposing us? Are they convicting us of sin? Now, are we allowing this, you know, the living word of God to change us from within to become more like Jesus? Verse 39, but our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him 
and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Let me stop there. Okay, so Stephen reminds them of, of yet another instance of Israel rejecting their God-given deliverer, choosing instead to return back. They wanted to return back to Egypt, you know, to the, to the land of slavery. And history was repeating itself in the Sanhedrin. Now, these Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, they were, reje- they were rejecting the Messiah. They were rejecting God's deliverer. They were, they were rejecting the freedom that Jesus offered them. They were choosing instead to go back to their Egypt of slavery to sin. Verse 41. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god, Rephan, the gods, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Stephen here quotes from Amos 5. He reminds them that the idolatry that would plague Israel for their entire history and which would eventually result in their exile in Babylon, that adultery started right in the beginning. While Moses was getting the law, in a few short weeks, they rejected Moses' leadership and they'd gone back to worshipping idols made by their hands. So, until now, just to summarize, Stephen has addressed three of the charges against him. You know, the charge that he blasphemed against God, against Moses, and against the law. He answers that by saying, no, I honor God. I know God is the God of glory. I'm not a blasphemer of God. He honors Moses as one of the greatest deliverers of all, sent by God. And he shows a level of honor for Moses that his accusers do not show, because honors the one that Moses pointed to. So he honors Moses deeply. And he honors the law as God intended it to be honored and, and lived out. He, he honored the law as the living word of God. So Stephen now addresses the fourth topic around which he's accused the temple. And we'll see that he doesn't specifically defend the temple. He rather helps the Jewish leaders to get context about what the temple actually is. They have a very limited worldview of God and they have a very limited worldview of the temple. And he now tries to help them. You have the proper view of, um, of the temple, its intentions and, and, and what it represents. Okay, so verse 44. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? 
Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? The model or the pattern for what would become the tabernacle was given to Moses by God on the mountain. Uh, you know, the people built the tabernacle. They took it with them through their wanderings in the wilderness and then into the promised land. And through the tabernacle, God was on the move with his people. Now, God moved with his people. Once the Israelites were settled in their land, uh, the transportable tabernacle was replaced by Solomon's temple, which was obviously stationary in one place. But to make his point about the temple, Stephen stresses that God does not live in houses built by human hands. And he quotes from Isaiah 66, Heaven is my throne, says God. You cannot possibly build any house to contain me. And the echoes here of what Solomon said when he dedicated the temple. You know, there, you know, we read in 1 Kings 8, Solomon speaking, Will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Now, so Stephen makes the point that the Jewish leaders have completely the wrong attitude towards the temple. They were worshipping the temple and everything that was going in it rather than the person the temple pointed to. And they had boxed God. They had limited his presence and his power to this building and all the rituals and stuff going on around it. And the temple they were in, by the way, was pretty impressive. You know, King Herod had lots of money bought by the Romans to appease the Jews. He built a temple that was twice the size of Solomon's temple. And it was at least as luxurious. And I can imagine Stephen standing in the temple look, looking around and saying, that's a lot more than this. This is impressive, but you know what? God can't be boxed in even the most impressive building in the world. So at the heart of their problem was their worldview. That comes up over and over again, doesn't it? In the book of Acts, and as we really read the Bible and understand how God works, the source of the problem is always our worldview. How we think about God, how we think about God's role and how he's working in the world. Now they had a narrow, limited view of God and how he had worked through history. They knew the history, but they didn't really see how God was really working. And they had a limited view of how God was working then through the Messiah Jesus. They had a puny, limited view of God thinking that the building that was built could contain him. They were missing how he was working and moving through Jesus. God was on the move through Jesus and they needed to move with him. Now, but how big is God really? Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever looked up at the universe, the stars at night, and just been in awe of God's creation? hope you do that often, I do. What we see there is such a tiny, tiny bit of God's creation. Uh, we can't answer the question directly. We do not know how big God is. We do not know how big his creation is. But I want to spend a bit of time hoping to stretch your imagination a little bit. Just to expand your view of how God is, how big God is. Okay, so if God is far bigger and greater than we can imagine, and that's what I'm going to focus on for the rest of the lesson. Can't see that very clearly, but that is a sunset in my most favorite place on earth. I've traveled to a few continents. This is only 40 kilometers from here. It's Laurie's Bay. 
And we have seen amazing sunsets over the years. Um, just over, over the ocean and, you know, Nolene knows just how much this means for us. This is soul, this is food for our soul, just being there and watching these sunsets. But when, when you see a sunset like that, you are actually watching an event that happened eight minutes and twenty seconds earlier. Can't realize that it takes eight minutes and twenty seconds for the light to travel from the sun to earth. Okay. So that happened eight and a half minutes earlier than we see. The distance between the earth and the sun is 150 million kilometers and light travels at 300,000 kilometers per second. Let's do it this way. So imagine that the distance between the sun and earth is the thickness of this paper. Okay. So this fraction of a millimeter is equivalent, is equivalent to 8 minutes and 20 seconds of light travel. Got that? Okay. So imagine that this is the distance between the Earth and the Sun. The next closest Sun to us is Alpha Centauri. I think I've got a picture of that. Artist's impression, obviously, there's a massive ring of, of dust around it. Now, Alpha Centauri is four and a half light years away from Earth. In other words, Light takes four and a half years to travel from Alpha Centauri to Earth. So if Alpha Centauri dies and fades away one day, we'll only know about it four and a half years later because the, the last light that it emitted before it was extinguished would take four and a half years to get to us. Okay, that's pretty far, isn't it? That is the next closest sun to Earth. Now, getting back to my illustration of a piece of paper, if this is the distance between the Earth and the sun, then the pile of paper that would, uh, that would be equivalent to the distance between the Earth and Alpha Centauri would be 20 meters high. Okay, that's a lot of thin pieces of paper, isn't it? That's about twice the height of this hall. Okay, that's how far Alpha Centauri is from us. Remember, each paper is 8 minutes and 20 seconds of light travel. Okay, so we, we're starting to get, just get a sense of, of, of how big the universe is. Now we are, our galaxy is called the Milky Way. You guys know that. Now the Milky Way, the size of the Milky Way, if we had to express the size of the Milky Way, using my paper illustration, from end to end, the Milky Way is equivalent to a pile of papers 500 kilometers high. Right, so the Milky Way is pretty big. But the Milky Way is actually one of the smallest galaxies in the known universe. That's the Milky Way. That there is our Milky Way. This obviously is not, you know, distance or true to distance. These are relative sizes of, of different galaxies in the universe. This galaxy is called Hercules A. It's about 30 times bigger than the Milky Way. Hercules A is not by any means even close to the biggest galaxy in the universe. Getting a sense of how big God is? You know, it gets even better. The scientists now have identified or they estimate that there are 100 billion galaxies in the known universe. 100 billion galaxies. And assuming that each galaxy, and this is a conservative estimate, assuming that each galaxy has a hundred billion stars, which is an estimated number of stars there are in our galaxy, the Milky Way, 
Let's be conservative and assume all the galaxies have about 100, 100 billion stars. That means that there, how many stars are there in the known universe? 100 billion times 100 billion. That's a big number. It's a one followed by 22 zeros. That is a billion trillion. A billion trillion stars. Now the thickness of the piece of paper just, it's become totally useless now, isn't it? Yeah, you, you just can't imagine how, how tall the pile of paper is. Um, so let's use grains of sand. Okay. I have here, in a glass, some sea sand. In your view, is, in your view like to guess how many grains of sand there are in this glass? <laughs> Not even close, no. There are about 20 million grains of sand in here. It took me a long time to count them last night. <laughs> so I look... That's why I look tired this morning. <laughs> now you can, you can estimate from the size of a grain of sand and the volume of the glass that there are about 15 to 20 million grains of sand here. It's quite a lot, eh? I mean, that's a lot of grains of sand. A little bit damp from the rain. Amen. Now, anyone like to guess how many grains of sand there are in all of the beaches and all of the deserts on earth? That's a lot. Believe it or not, there's some scientists who've calculated that. Well, they, they have estimated that. They estimate that all the grains of sand on earth comes to a number of 1 times 10 to the power of 19. How many stars did we estimate? Are in the, 1 times 10 to the power of 22. So there are 1,000 times more stars in the known galaxy than there are grains of sand on earth. Is our God big or what? And he has the, he has the knockout punch. Our, all of our science and technology can only observe a very small part of the universe. I don't know how they come up with this, but scientists estimate that the, the total universe is at least 300 times bigger than the known universe. So multiply all these numbers by 300. It is ridiculous. The size of the known universe, which is a fraction of the total universe, is estimated to be 93, let me get this right, 93 billion light years. So it'll take light, it takes light to travel from one side of the known universe to the other side, 93 billion years. You know, we've all come to church today, so I assume we all believe that God is the creator God of the, described in the Bible, right? We all believe that God created the universe out of nothing, that God just spoke this universe into existence. Do you know how big and how powerful God needs to be to do that? You know, the universe is, we cannot imagine how big the universe is. Now these numbers Humble us completely. We have a number of 22 noughts. I mean, it's, it's meaningless to us. We cannot begin to understand, I believe, and appreciate just how big God is. And the Jewish leaders in the time of Stephen were trying to limit God to a building. That was the experience of God. And I think the question we must ask ourselves, and you're expecting this, do you limit God in any way? How big is your God? 
It's easy to look at these big numbers and say, yes, God is this incredibly big God who breathed this universe that we can't imagine how big it is into existence. But the question is, is how big is your God? You see, our God is only as big as we allow him to be. You know, do you, do you really believe the words of the psalmist in Psalm 147 verse 45? Where the psalmist write, God determines the number of the stars, that incredibly big number, and he calls them each by name. <laughs> God knows. He can call each star by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. There are at least a thousand times more stars. A thousand times more stars than there are grains of sand on earth, I remind you. Multiply that by a few more hundred times. God knows all of them by name. You know, do you believe Paul, you know, when he wrote in Ephesians 3 verse 20 that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to, the, to his power that is at work within us? How big is your God? Do you believe that God can, can heal that broken relationship you have with your husband or wife? Do you think God's big enough to do that? Do you think God is big enough to turn around, to totally turn around the life of of your teenage son or daughter who is addicted to drugs? Do you believe that God can, can help you overcome your anger, your selfishness, your lust, your pride, your low self esteem, your fears? Do you believe God is big enough to transform you to become more like Jesus? Do you believe that God can help you Get over that addiction that causes you so much shame and guilt. Do you believe that God can help you to forgive that man who abused you when you were a child? Do you think that God can help you get over that horrible experience? Do you believe God is big enough to do that? Do you believe that God is big enough to help you to persevere through the struggles that you're going through at the moment? Do you believe that nothing that you have ever done that has caused you shame and guilt, that nothing is too big or too difficult for God to forgive. You know, how big is your God as we sit here this morning? Do you really believe that God can do immeasurably more than you can ask or imagine? You know, David wrote this Psalm 8, and this is going to help prepare us for the communion. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You know, our big, big God who spoke this ridiculously, unimaginably big universe into existence is mindful of his creation. He's mindful of mankind and he cares for mankind. You know, the God of glory came to earth as a normal human being, to take our sin and brokenness on himself. He allowed himself to be nailed to a crude Roman cross to bring us salvation, to rescue us, to deliver us. You know, and as Jesus prayed in in John 17, he said, Father, the hour has come. This is just before Jesus was arrested and taken away to be crucified. He, He prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you. The glory of God refers to the full expression of God's character. The glory of God 
captures everything that God is. And the glory of God is displayed on the cross more than anywhere else. Now the extent of God's love, the extent of God's character is summarized in Jesus. It's reflected in Jesus hanging on the cross. You know, this all-powerful God, God who is bigger than we can imagine, the God who the Sanhedrin didn't even understand to the tiniest extent, you know, the God that the Jewish leaders rejected, the God that the Jewish leaders tried to box in a building, and dare I say the God that you and I dare to box at times. He created, he breathed the universe into existence, yet he is deeply concerned and mindful of each of us. And more than anything else, this big, big God wants us to know him. He wants us to enter into a saving relationship with him. And if you are saved, if you sit here this morning and you have experienced that rescue, that deliverance, that salvation, then God's greatest desire is that you become transformed to become more and more like Jesus. As we come up to the communion table this morning, I pray that we understand how big and how great God is. And that we allow him to work in our lives. That, he allow, that we allow him to work in us individually and as a community. And that we allow him to do the incredibly great things that he wants to do. That we can't even imagine. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that, that none of us repeats the error of the Sanhedrin that we have just read about. I pray, God, that we do not limit you, we do not constrain you, we do not box you in any way. I pray that you'll help us to develop a correct worldview of who you are and how you have worked through history, how you have worked in our lives, and how you continue to work uh, through the Spirit of Jesus amongst us. I pray, Father, that we will understand how big you are and that we do not limit you in any way, God. Um, I pray that we will understand how how long and wide and how high and deep the love of Jesus is. I pray, Father, that none of us here will reject the one that you have sent to deliver us. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us the glory of God. Thank you for demonstrating the full extent of God's character and his love for us by dying on a crude Roman cross. Thank you for saving us out of our brokenness, um, and thank you, Father, for raising Jesus from the dead. Uh, thank you, Father, for that form of deliverance which you offer us. Uh, you rescue us not only from the brokenness that our sin has brought about, but you rescue us from death itself, which is the greatest enemy of all. Father, we love you. Jesus, we're grateful for your sacrifice. Holy Spirit, we are grateful for the way that you're working amongst us, and we invite you. We invite you, Father, we invite you, Jesus, we invite you, Spirit, to help us please understand just how big and great you are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.